I always love this Sunday because what all it represents, resurrection, hope. So there should be tremendous joy, huh? Absolutely. And so I'm just so thankful for our worship teams and, and people and whatnot. That was awesome worship. Thank you. You know, there was a man who attended uh, church on Easter Sunday, and uh, after the service was over, the pastor, as some they do, especially in the you know, more mainline churches, they stand back there and they'll greet the people as they're filing out and leaving. And this man who had attended the Easter Sunday service said, you know, Reverend, that was a pretty good sermon, uh, but aren't you in kind of a rut? And the pastor was somewhat confused. He said, well, what do you mean? And the man said, well, it sounded just like the sermon that, that I heard uh, the last time I was here. See, you're not getting it. You know how people just come, I, I knew you were going to get this, but you know how people just kind of come on Easter, you know, once a year, so it's a, kind of a rut, you know, and then, well, it's a fine start to this morning. So I was kind of wondering, you know, what should I speak about this morning? What do you think I should speak about? Jesus, what? No, we should... The resurrection, right? Somebody's on this thing. Finally, all right. The resurrection. And so I've entitled the message this morning, Incognito, Incognito. Lord, I just thank you for humor and messing around, Lord. But what we're going to talk about now is really serious. It is life-changing. And I thank you for each and every person that you brought here this morning. You brought them. And you brought them to various bodies all around. I think about it, not only this town and city, but state and this nation. and It all started yesterday around the world. We were meeting on the first day of the week, like they did 2,000 years ago, because something profound happened. Jesus resurrected from the dead. And I pray if someone doesn't know that in their heart, they will by the time they walk out of here. So I ask that you would fill me from the soles of my feet, to the crown of my head. I ask, Holy Spirit, you are welcome, that you would even manifest yourself in a thicker and more powerful way. May you truly give us soft hearts to receive and ears to hear the truth this morning that will be spoken. And I ask for this in your precious name. Amen. 2007, a 39-year-old man stationed himself next to a trash bin at the subway station and Washington, D.C. He had on a sweatshirt and a Washington Nationals baseball cap. He opened a violin case and he seated it with some money. He started to play. He did not just play anything. He started with the Bach, which is one of the most difficult pieces to play for a violinist. And the 39-year-old man was not just playing any violin. He was playing a 1713 violin that was handcrafted by Stradivari himself. This violin, in fact, was so famous that it had been stolen twice. The violinist was a man by the name of Joshua Bell. Skip, can you put up his picture? For those of you who are not up on classical music or orchestras, Bell is a well-known figure. In fact, he is one of the greats of today. Now, Bell was an accomplice along with the Washington Post newspaper, and he willingly participated in this experiment. With the greatest violinist in the world, playing the best music ever written on the most expensive violin, be able to get anybody's attention at rush hour. 
Belle looked like a common street entertainer who was standing by a trash bin. What would happen? After two and one half minutes of playing, 63 people had rushed by. Finally, one man slowed down, but he did not stop. Six minutes into his performance, a man actually stopped, leaned against the wall, and began to listen. In total, 1,070 people rushed by Joshua Bell without giving him any attention at all while he played for 15 minutes. 27 people threw change into his violin case as they were just rushing by. Bell collected a total of $32 for his trouble. He collects $1,000 per minute at concerts. The resulting newspaper article in the Washington Post won a Pulitzer Prize. One line of print just leaps out. He, Bell, is the one who is real. They, the passerbys, they're the ghosts. They're the ghosts. You know, there's something about incognito stories that just grabs our attention, isn't it? Doesn't it? Greatness unnoticed. And perhaps one of the greatest incognito stories occurred 2,000 years ago on Easter Sunday morning. Let's look at it together. Skip, can you put up those verses in Luke chapter 24? Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleophas asked him, are you our only visitor to Jerusalem and you do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked, about Jesus of Nazareth? They replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women are amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companies, our companions, went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe. All the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he was going to go further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and he began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were our hearts not burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. You know, I look at that story and I just stand amazed. Two people here are walking on the road to Emmaus and they don't realize that they're walking with God. They are walking with Jesus and they can't figure it out. They can't realize, you know, and it's 
Verse 16, that's kind of a special interest to me, perhaps to you. It says, but they, that is the two disciples, were kept from recognizing him. Now we know one of the disciples' names, Cleophas. However, we do not know the other name of the other disciple with him. Some scholars think the other disciple was Cleophas' wife. So we have sort of, you know, kind of the first Christian family. The fact is we really don't know who the other disciple was or is. It's kind of a mystery. One pastor, though, he thinks the second disciple is nameless so that you can put your name there in the story. You know, it's kind of interesting. There is a museum in Florence, Italy, and in one particular room there are just these paintings after paintings, great masterpieces of the Renaissance period. And then when you come to the exit, you kind of come to a surprise. At the end of all of these magnificent masterpieces, there's an empty frame at the end of the wall. And you can walk behind the wall and you can put your face in the frame. The nameless disciple walking on the road to Emmaus was an empty frame. And you and I can put our name in that story. Now, the New Testament will often have intriguing supporting characters. You know, and I, for one, am happy about that. You know, I don't know about you, but I can't always identify with Peter and Paul. They are towering marquee stars. They stand alone as huge statues in the great cathedrals of Europe. They belong to the ages. But then comes along a guy by the name of Cleo and his unnamed buddy. And Jesus disappointed them both. Has Jesus ever disappointed you? Now what is truly astounding to me is that the first recorded appearance of Jesus after his resurrection in Luke was not to Matthew, was not to Mark, was not to John but it was to these two supporting characters of the New Testament. And one of them, amazingly enough, is we don't even have his name. Thank God. Thank God Jesus does not just appear to Peter or John or James, but he shows up for regular folks like you and I who are walking home in the darkness of disappointment. But yet it troubles me. How in the world could these two disciples be walking with Jesus and not even recognize him when that is who they were exactly looking for and hoping to see? The text says that they were kept from recognizing him. You know, some theologians suggest that divine activity is actually in play here. And Jesus was kind of playing a cosmic game of where's Waldo? Skip, put up the picture. Oh, that's... Wrong one, wrong one. Where's Waldo? You know, I I shared with you several months ago that uh, when my three girls were very young, they loved the Where's Waldo books. How how many like those? And and to be honest, I I admitted I like the Where's Waldo books. In fact, I still like them. And, you know, if, if you know anything about this or if you're uninitiated, the whole goal is to find Waldo on every page of the book. And you think, well, that's, how difficult can that be? Well, see, if you're a Waldo expert, kind of like myself, it's actually quite difficult. Skip, can you put up the picture? Can you see him? Can you find him? I'll give you a hint. He's in the upper right-hand corner. He's in the upper right-hand corner. Now, the reason why Waldo is so difficult to find is because he's so ordinary-looking, and he blends in with a 100 other Waldo wannabes, right? 
and it makes them very, very difficult to find. But let me tell you something this morning. Jesus is not like Waldo. He wants to be discovered, he wants to be known, and he wants to be followed. But yet, you know what? The average person misses Jesus. The average person misses God, and the obvious question is why? Now, there's many reasons why a person could miss Jesus. There's many reasons why a person could miss God. But the text tells us that there is a specific reason why these two disciples actually missed Jesus and couldn't recognize him and were disappointed by him. And the fact of the matter is, it is probably the number one reason why most people miss Jesus, miss God, and are disappointed by him. Now listen to this. The reason I speak of is far too many people are invested in an imaginary Jesus who will do what they want him to do. Far too many people are invested in an imaginary Jesus who will do what they want him to do. And Jesus says to these disappointed and confused disciples in Luke chapter 24 and verses 25 and 26, look what he says to them. How foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? You know, not too long ago, I was reading that great theological journal, that great theological commentary, Facebook. And I was absolutely astounded. I was amazed at what people and who people think Jesus actually is. You know, for some, he's the social justice Jesus. And he's going to solve all of the social ills. For others, you know, he is the Mr. Rogers Jesus, all love and all tolerance. And then, of course, there is the prosperity Jesus. And the prosperity Jesus just wants to make everybody happy. I am amazed at how many invented versions of Jesus there actually are. These two disciples who were traveling on the road to the Emmaus actually had invented their own Jesus. Their own Jesus was military Messiah or jihad Jesus. And he was going to deliver them from their political enemies. This Jesus, he would have a throne without thorns, he would have a crown without a cross, and he would have power without pain. You see, he was an invented Jesus. And because he was an invented Jesus, these disciples, when he was standing right next to them, they couldn't see him. So many people tell me, I can't see Jesus. The reason why they can't see Jesus is because they've invented a Jesus that doesn't exist. They've invented, have you this morning, who is your picture of Jesus? What Jesus perhaps have you invented? You see, Jesus is trying to tell these two disciples who he is. In fact, Jesus gives us the key to understanding him. The combination to the lock. He gives us the password to the webpage. Did you know that in all of Hebrew history, there was not one rabbi who interpreted Genesis to Malachi and found a suffering servant. Not one. Not one. A throne, yes. An army, yes. Humiliation. A cross. A tomb. No way. Jesus, it says, they'll open their minds. And my prayer right now is that Jesus would open your mind and my mind. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? You see, 
The thorn room is the way to the throne room. The cross is the way to the crown. And none of us want it, and even fewer of us will accept it. These two missed Jesus. You see, the Jews missed the wounded healer. 2,700 years ago before Jesus Christ walked on planet Earth, the prophet Isaiah wrote these stunning words. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Suddenly on that road to Emmaus, those two disciples who were walking had the veil taken off their minds and their hearts began to burn. As your heart ever began just to burn? The Messiah, he suffered for us. He suffered for me. He suffered for you. You know, have you ever seen the optical illusion of the duck? Skip, can you put it up? See the duck? You see his bill there? Most everybody, just, you just see him. But can you see the rabbit now? The rabbit with the laid back ears, his eye? You see, if you keep looking and keep looking, all of a sudden it'll just pop out at you. Suddenly you see it. It's absolutely astounding. And that's exactly what happened to these two disciples who were walking on the road to Emmaus. The Messiah, they finally understood it. It just all became clear. He had to be wounded before he could heal, suffer before he could save, go through the thorn room before the throne room. He must be the disfigured Christ before he could be the delivering Christ. Richard Seltzer. Some of you might actually be familiar with him. Richard Seltzer was actually born and raised in Troy, New York. He became a famous surgeon as well as a famous author. And in one of his books, he writes a poignant moment in his surgical practice. Listen to this. I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, somewhat clownish, A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, had been severed. She will be this way from now on. I had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor on her cheek, I had to cut that little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight. Isolated from me, the moment is a private one. Who are they, I ask myself, and this wry mouth I have made, who gaze at each other so generously and so lovingly? The young woman suddenly speaks. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say it will. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent, but the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All at once, I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a God moment. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I am so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers, to show her that her kiss still works. That is love. That is real love. Here is what these two disciples on the road to Emmaus simply did not expect. No one expected it. God himself 
would come down to us, twist himself because we are twisted, distort himself because we are distorted, disfigure himself because we are disfigured. I ask you this morning, is this the Jesus you have? Is this the Jesus you have? Is this the Jesus that you know? Is this the Jesus that you are following? Because you see, if it is, then this must be true of your life, and this must be true of my life. The apostle Peter, 2,000 years ago, wrote these powerful words in 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 21. To this you were called, because Jesus suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. That you and I must follow in his steps. If you want to get to the throne room, then you've got to go through the thorn room. See, that's not preached today. We just say you go directly to the, thorn, you know, the throne room. doesn't work like that. You want to wear our crown? You've got to take up your cross. But see, we don't hear it preached that way. This is the Jesus of the New Testament. This is the Jesus who can save you and give you life. This is the Jesus that you must follow and I must follow. You know, I'd like to end this way. It is Resurrection Sunday, and I have to tell you, I do love Resurrection Sunday because, you see, the Jesus I know went to the cross. He died, but he resurrected. He rose from the dead. And you know, because that is true, because that is true, there's hope for every single person in this room. There's hope for every single person in this room. You know, people have not gathered for the past 2,000 years to say the stock market has risen. It has risen indeed. They have not gathered to say the dollar has risen. It has risen indeed. They have not gathered to say that America has risen. It has risen indeed. For the past 2,000 years, across every continent and culture, in difficult times of poverty and disease and pain and hardship and death itself, people have cried out, Jesus has risen. He has. Jesus has risen. So do you know him? If you don't know him, then you're missing out on life. And so a lot of people up here would love to pray with you, talk to you about how you can know the real Jesus. Like that church there. I'm a fool for Jesus. That's pretty good. No better thing than that. Thank you for being here this Sunday morning with us, Resurrection Sunday. And I pray, I pray that you're going to have and you do have his resurrection in your heart. Please leave the chairs. You can leave them down. All right, now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. I pray that the Lord be gracious to you and you truly would have his resurrection power, his resurrection in your heart, not just for today, but all year long. God bless you and take care.